I was meeting today with someone who, who just returned from the, the month-long retreat at Spirit Rock, the first month of the two-month retreat. Now the second month is in full swing. And I always get a contact high from anyone that's come off of retreat. You can feel a, a, a sense of stillness and a kind of brightness of presence. And, and it reminds me that the, the habit of, of dwelling in a continuous way in the, in the living present cleans the senses, uh, sharpens the attention, opens the heart in such a, a, a beautiful way that there's literally almost a, a kind of fragrance of goodwill that flows from anybody. And nobody's trying to be that way. It just happens. It's just the, the, the flowering of our, of our mind essence, of our nature, uh, kind of natural intelligence and, and goodwill uh, and responsiveness of, of heart that, um, that comes. You know, and just, and one person who walked in the building tonight who also came off the, uh, the retreat talked about what it was like to be back in the mission, 16th and mission, and how with that sense of immediacy that you really feel the, the assault on our senses we're, that we don't even realize the extent to which we are um, impinged upon, that we are living in a, in a especially in urban life, uh, a relentless flow of sights and sounds and smells and tastes. And, and it's easy with that amount of input to shut down, to to tighten up, and in our tightening up and shutting down, uh, we, it's very easy with that kind of internal pressure then to spend a lot of time disembodied and lost in, in thought and, and, wondering, and wonder why we don't feel happy and well. And, and most of the strategizing for finding happiness and well-being uh, usually has to do with getting away or, um, you know, what's next anyway. It's very rare that the response to that moment of dis-ease or just the feeling of, of tension that we stop and actually let ourselves feel tense or that we feel the grief of meeting. Like I, I felt a wave of, of sadness today because the course, our entrance here is that we have a, we have a retinue of, of people who are homeless uh, with us tonight, and we, as we often do here. And, and just opening to that, that's, it's not easy to, to open to that, that. That's us, that we're here together. And the tendency is tighten up, get afraid, or think that something will, you know, something's, uh, it's them and not me, and and then pretty soon the tension of being in our separate little bubble produces more thoughts and, and we walk around disembodied. So getting back to the person who I met with today, although I was taken by the, by the beautiful presence, uh, I was also, he was talking about how there was a point in the retreat. He walked down the hill at Spirit Rock and saw on this little sticker or a what I guess they call them sticker, bumper sticker. It said, empty phenomena rolling on. 
And this is the, these are the words of Anagarika Munindra, wonderful meditation master, teacher of Joseph Goldstein, who is my root Vipassana teacher. I always, whenever I mention him, I always like to say gladly that I consider him the preeminent Western Dharma teacher. Well, his teacher was Anagarika Munindra. And Munindra used to talk about the nature of the world and phenomena as empty phenomena rolling on everything, appearing and disappearing spontaneously. Be human beings, things, experiences, constantly changing, ungraspable, that when one grasps, they experience suffering. And empty of self, everything selfless, it's just happening. And when uh, this person who was telling me about this read that bumper sticker, their mind kind of relaxed and opened, and for the rest of the retreat, they, were, they had this sense of the same things coming and going in, in, our, in his heart and in his mind, in his body, but he was regarding it with a certain kind of spaciousness and ease and balance. And so in the midst of whatever was happening, there was a sense of, 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 of happiness, a sense of well-being that uh, did not really depend on the circumstances of, or whatever was going on in his mind and body. And this empty phenomena rolling on remind, uh, reminded me of my own time with this wonderful teacher named Munindra, and I started thinking about uh, some interactions that we had, and I, I've shared them a lot here on, on Tuesday night over the years, but the, the most... Uh, most impactful interaction I ever had with him was when I had the, the, besides sitting with him and sitting on retreat with him, I had the good fortune of being his attendant uh, on a retreat when uh, in the old days, back in the early 1980s, I, not only was I sitting, you know, months every year in, uh, in silence, but I was also moved to uh, manage retreats and support other people sitting. So I had a really fantastic time managing retreats. And one of my duties as manager of one retreat was to attend to Manindra, who was one of the leaders of the retreat. And Manindra was an unusual kind of teacher because he, he didn't... <clears throat> he may have internally had a, 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 an understanding that allowed his mind to be silent and his heart to be at ease and a certain freedom, but outwardly... He was like a leprechaun, it moved very quickly and very excitedly and with a certain interest and delight and he cared about everything. And that was, that's one of the beautiful faces of mindfulness is that everything becomes interesting. And it's, one, it's considered one of the awakening factors that if you practice continuous mindfulness, naturally your interest will increase and such intense interest that you'll experience a kind of rapture and that desire to be somewhere else. How many of you want to be often somewhere else? A few honest people in the room. <laughs> well, I think human beings in general want to be somewhere else. But the quality that comes in a, for, to a heart or mind that, that is really interested and caring about what's happening in the present moment is you just stop it present becomes so compelling that the desire to be somewhere else just starts to fade away he had that quality had that quality but it was it wasn't this whatever your idealized version of a meditator looks like you know a buddha sitting still on a bodhi tree 
under the Bodhi tree. He was on fire. And if you would ask him a question about the Dharma, a simple question with, that may, that you would think would just bring a simple answer, you would get a 30-minute Dharma talk. And somewhere in there, you, you would hear the full breadth and depth of the Dharma. And it was, and I would often be in a state of awe. So I followed him around. I took him shopping a lot. And I, I saw that he took as keen an interest in boom boxes as he did in the breathing in and breathing out. Because we went shopping for boom boxes down in Palm Springs. <laughs> So I spent a lot of time with him, and he got to observe me a little bit, too, and I was just young, full of myself, and on fire with the Dharma, but, but um, you know, oblivious in so many ways that a 20-something can be. I'm not saying you are, those 20-somethings in here. But as, I, as we were about to um, part after the time that we spent together, he, as often a teacher does, they offer blessings, you know, may you, be, may you be happy. But when he looked at me, he didn't just say, may you be happy. He said, may you be truly happy, or may you truly be happy. And when he said this to me, and I guess it, I was right for it, it um, I felt this immediate collapse, a kind of deflation sense, well, maybe I'm not truly happy. I thought, I, you know, I was at fairly happy disposition, and, but truly happy? And I was so struck by that comment that it, it became the cause of my life to find out what true happiness is. Already it was in works, even though I hadn't even realized it. But then I started studying and teaching a lot of retreats on the, on the topic of happiness. And it all came down to a certain point to, of course, the teachings are all about happiness. But we often don't have a very good understanding of it. And that's why I've repeated the teachings, that, at least in general, about happiness all through the years here at Mission Dharma. Because we, our idea of happiness is so limited. Everything we're taught from the time we're born is a very limited version of happiness. The very things that we seek for our happiness and we're taught to seek for happiness tend to uh, make us less happy. That's why it's very, um, very, um, this world that you, people have commented on it from, from the beginning of this country that even though we have so much have so many forms of pleasure, not unlike the, it was for the Buddha, there's often a, a sense of, of dissatisfaction that we wear on our, in our brow. And, you know, I, I realized I, I, go, I swim daily at a, at a gym. And when I look around the locker room, even though exercise gladdens the heart, lifts the spirit, most people look kind of miserable. And I think it's a common, it's a common thing to, to scout. And this is in a land where there is more of everything. So the, the limit to which a person can experience pleasure is just unknown in the history of the world. But very few people are truly happy. 
because they have, most have a mistaken understanding of where happiness lies. The Buddha, as I said, was all about happiness and his teaching, and he was even called Sukhiya, the happy one. And that's another misunderstanding that people have from a distance. The Buddhism looks like the teachings about suffering. And, and in some ways, it, people can t take the teachings on suffering and become very identified with that as the teachings and become really uh, obnoxious, a kind of uh, grim, and so, that it, it, so everybody interacts with the teaching, but the, those teachings on suffering are actually uh, all in the context of, of uh, giving rise to this capacity that every human being has to be truly happy. And if you look at the essential teaching of the Buddha, the, the, the teaching that was offered and the First, the first teaching that the Buddha offered his ascetic friends, those who would listen to what he had realized in his own awakening to true happiness, it, it starts with the unhappiness that is implied with those of us and in whatever way we do not open to the difficulties that are a part of our life to the degree that we do not come to some acceptance that life has within it things that are really difficult, to the degree that we live with non-acceptance, that to that degree we will experience dis-ease, dis dissatisfaction, and a, a certain kind of uh, contraction. Because not only does that non-acceptance of Sickness, of old age, of dying, of death, of, of desires that are unfulfilled, of loss that's inevitable. Not only is, does one then experience these difficulties, but one experiences the reaction to those difficulties, the tension in trying to hold the, the waves of life at, at bay. And so not only do we have the, the slings and arrows of... of all kinds of misfortune that, that show up in everybody's life, but we have the extra arrows of not liking it very much. And then that habit of reacting to and developing a very strong pattern of wanting things to be different than the way they are in the form of, of craving for a different place, to go somewhere, to have something, to, to be different, to become someone, to go, to keep going, that craving to go, craving to move, uh, intensifies our disease. It gives rise to the view in our mind that happiness is something that will come someday. It gives rise to the view that I cannot be happy now. It gives rise to the sense that the present moment, the only place where any of us ever live, is a place that we can't find happiness. 
Our mind entrances us into thinking that reality is a place that we're, um, is that we need to escape. And so that was the second truth of the Buddha, that, that what keeps us bound in mental suffering is our, um, is our unwillingness to open to life as it is and continually trying to get somewhere else or get rid of anything unpleasant. And all of that, as I always say, is very innocent because we love ourselves and so we'll try anything to feel better. But the methodology that we use to feel better just adds to the, those extra arrows to the, the challenges that we meet every day just getting out of bed. Our bodies hurt. We feel the pain of hunger, so then we have to cook, shop for food, cook, figure out what to eat, where to eat, who to eat with. And we have to wash our bodies. They just keep shedding. They keep getting dirty and smelly, and we just have to keep washing them. Hair gets greasy, got to keep washing that. Then it falls out, and then you just, you know, it's one thing after another. To be in harmony with this brings relief, though. To fight with that is um, just, you know, makes it hard. So the whole point of the teaching was to be happy. To, to, to find happiness. Not to dwell on how terrible everything is. That's, that's depressing. But to, to open to it. And letting our opening to things that are hard, even moment by moment, anything that you're experiencing right now that feels hard, maybe hard to listen to me right now. Just notice that. Wow feeling so much aversion. Oh, aversions like this. When, and in that stopping, not going, but stopping, aversion, there is a space, peace is there, and it's open, it's inviting, even when you're feeling terrible. That there's there's a freedom even in stopping and taking in the, the neighborhood, as I talked about last week. Look at your fellow bugs, I said. I read the David Budbill poem. So the, the teachings continued by saying, if you, if you stop and you notice the tendency of your mind to go out in search. If you notice that, even that noticing becomes your pathway, becomes your reminder that nothing will bring you, make you happier than you, than you are if you stay. That all your search for, all your toppling forward into the imagined future just makes the burden of our life, it makes us less and less in touch with, with the peace and the silence of our nature. And yet, it is possible, any human being, if you're interested, and if who, who, anybody that can be taught, 
can experience a cessation, a falling away of that tendency to be obsessed with what's next, to be going all the time. Any human being can learn to settle back into the moment, to learn to sit in the middle of it all, to sit in the middle of the joys, let them fly, the sorrows, let them break your heart, and let everything, everything become your path. Because usually when we think of a path, and I think of being on a path, many of you are passionately on the, the path of awakening, we forget that this is language, that there really is no path to awakening. It doesn't go anywhere. The path is simply identifying, is staying where you are and identifying all those things that obscure the truth, obscure the potential realization of the happiness and well-being, the peace that is always already here. So enlightenment, waking up, it surrounds you every single moment. So our path is simply to see what obscures it. And so we, we use our mindful attention and our loving kindness to, I always think of Nisargadatta where he says, brush the dust of memory. Clear the mirror of our mind so that we can see that whatever it is that's happening here is our path because it brings us home to the reality of the present moment. What is the present moment? The present moment is whatever you're experiencing. Because the, in trance, the, the trance of the, of the wanting mind, if it goes unnoticed, will say this. Well, I'll read this again as I have before. As long as we believe our mind will say, I believe I need something to make me happier. If we believe that we need things or places or something to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. In this way, pleasure, our addiction to pleasure is a kind of distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, and this is something we can all realize in a moment, there's nothing wrong with me. Or another way of saying it is, there's nothing wrong with this moment. I always think, whenever I think of this, this sense of stepping out of that, that, um, that incessant flywheel of endless moving and going and wanting, thinking that something will make me happier than I am. I, I often think of the, the movie with, where Jack Nicholson goes into the psychiatrist's office and he looks around at everyone who's, whose brows are furrowed and the 
and their energy collapse, and he says to people in the office, what if this is as good as it gets? And I always ask a group if I remember this, I say, what if this is as good as it gets? What if for once in the span of our life, we stopped moving, stopped looking ahead, stopped comparing what's happened to something that happened before, and we just took it in? All of a sudden, without doing anything, the dust begins to settle. There's a stilling of the body, stilling of the mind. Unless I consult my memory, I, can't, I cannot find anything missing. I can't find anything wrong. But all day long, I've been going around thinking, Something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with this world. Something's wrong. Something. Now, if I've, if I've experienced the, the end of these mind worlds for a moment, then I can actually feel myself, myself here with you in the family of of beings, and I can feel the, the beings who are lined up outside the, the gates here, covered in blankets. And that, may move, that immediacy may move me to, to do something, or, or at least I, it's no longer an obstacle to my happiness and well-being. It just becomes the my sensitivity and compassion, let's say, becomes the expression of my well-being. So I'll just keep reading here. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. How many of you can say that with any conviction? And how do you know that something's wrong with you when you don't consult your memory? So your memory is secondhand information. What, what the awakening or the happiness of a Buddha is based on real time, firsthand. Now on present evidence, before you have time to consult the second-hand version. How do you know that you're not okay? So we do have a habit of believing there's something wrong with us and something that needs to be corrected. And as long as we believe that and really act on that, then our then we will continue to ha experience the pleasure or happiness that comes from, uh, from fixing whatever that, that we think needs fixing and feel the dissatisfaction and unhappiness of whatever has not been fixed. But this is all, in some ways, a mind game. True happiness 
is unconditioned. It rests on nothing. It's your natural state. It's home. It needs no evidence other than your being conscious. Being conscious that your idea that something wrong is wrong with you is a distortion. It's a lie. It's not true. It's not absolutely true. If it was absolutely true, you would find immediate evidence in real time that there's something wrong with you. And I, I've yet to find a person that could find that in real time. So real happiness is best expressed negatively is there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. So this actual, ever-present experience is our path. It goes nowhere. You've probably heard the Ryokan poem, beautiful Ryokan poem, where it says, Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Which means stop going. Settle back into the moment. So he says this, when this is actually an ever-present experience, and the person asks a question, which experience is that, this ever-present experience? And how does he respond? And what I'm hopefully pointing to tonight says the experience of being empty. I could, you could substitute open, aware, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in this openness. In the emptiness, the insubstantiality of all the content of your mind. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So you may not realize this, but in the midst of all of your internal and external dramas, there is a happiness and a peace and well-being that is in, unmoved by the joys and the sorrows. And it exists as the very nature of the consciousness through which you're perceiving. This is why we practice to both recognize the life of the present moment, to open to our difficulties, to see the way the mind wants to go somewhere else, to experience the cessation of that tendency to, to search elsewhere for happiness, to experience the joy of being right where we are and not wanting to be somewhere else, and to, to come out of a confused, confused 
misperceptions about where happiness is to be found. Because the advertising will tell you that you must have more. You must keep going. So I just want to read a little passage from the Buddha where someone asks him, and this is kind of in sutra language, it's from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the, the, numbered, the numbered sutras, the teachings. person asks him, is it possible, oh, it's talking to the Buddha, is it possible that by going, one can know, see, or reach the end of the world, where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away, and is not reborn, which means free. And the Buddha says, I declare, O friend, that by going, it is not possible to know, see, or reach the end of the world where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away, is not reborn. And then the person responds, it is wonderful, Lord, it is amazing, Lord, how well it was said by the Blessed One that by going it is not possible to know, see, reach the end of the world where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away, and is not reborn. And then this person goes and he continues by telling a story. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. You just have to get used to the language. He says, once in a former life I was a seer named Rohitasa, Boja's son. Endowed with supernormal power, I could walk through the sky. Such, Lord, was my speed that in the time needed for strong, skilled, experienced, and trained archer to shoot easily with a swift arrow across the shadow of a palm tree, in such a time I could take a step as long as the distance between the eastern and the western sea. Endowed with such speed and such a stride, I wanted to reach the end of the world by walking. And with my lifespan of a hundred years, except the time needed to eat and drink, to urinate and defecate, to sleep and to rest, I walked for a hundred years. And without reaching the world's end, I died along the way. It is wonderful, Lord. It is amazing, Lord, how well it was said by the Blessed One that by going, it is not possible to know, see, or reach the end of the world, where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away and is not reborn. Indeed, friend, so do I declare. But I do not say that one can make an end to suffering without having reached the end of the world. And I further proclaim, friend, that it is in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, the path leading to the cessation of the world. So it is through this body, right where it is. It's not through going. It's not through having an out-of-body experience. It's through settling back and experience the vividness, the full richness, the full pain, and the joy of being present and not searching for this elsewhere. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So I just appreciate that you're, that you're sitting tonight and keep sitting, keep walking, keep doing everything mindfully, with kindness, especially self-compassion when you see how much you run from silence, how much you keep going in your life.
And when I say not going, it doesn't mean you don't get trained, you don't learn how to talk to people, you don't learn how to make money, you don't learn how to feed yourself, you do all those things. But you don't do those in order to be happy. You do those as an expression of your full human nature. Happiness is unconditional. There are no conditions. So the Buddha said very succinctly, there are two kinds of happiness. There's happiness that is caused, that depends on conditions, that depends on getting what you want or getting rid of what you don't want. That kind of happiness is, just makes you more unhappy. That's called the happiness of bondage. And then there is a second kind of happiness that's called unconditional happiness. Happiness of, that doesn't depend on conditions. Happiness that is free of, of hunger and need for something different. And that's, the, that's what the teachings of awakening point to. So if you're looking for just more pleasure, the pleasure of concentration, the pleasure of this or the pleasure of that, you will not be happy as a Dharma student. But if you are looking for that happiness that is unconditioned, and the paradox is only those who search for it find it, even though it goes nowhere. <laughs> but if that's the one you're looking for, I have no doubt that you'll find what you're looking for. So may all beings awaken to the highest happiness. May all beings live with ease. May all experience a cessation of grasping, condemning, and the self-delusion that thinks there's something wrong with us. May all beings be free. And may our practice today and every day, from the moment we wake up till the moment we sleep, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings, including ourselves. May all hearts be touched by the dark. Thank you. Thanks for your generosity. Thanks for your practice. See you next Tuesday, hopefully. And please sign up for the, there are a few spaces left in the class. So take advantage of this opportunity for a five-week class led by two of our senior Sangha members. And hopefully see you again soon.